You're listening to Canada's Court, your home for all your Canadian basketball needs. Here's your host, Philip Drost. Well, there isn't a lot of basketball to watch right now, pretty much none. So when ESPN announced it was releasing a documentary, The Last Dance, a look at the 97-98 Bulls as they went for their second three-peat, people got pretty excited. The first two episodes aired on Sunday, and Canadian fans can stream it on Netflix. And here to talk with me about the first two episodes and what we can expect going forward is Chuck Swirsky. Chuck Swirsky is, of course, the Chicago Bulls radio play-by-play announcer. He was in Chicago from 79 to 94, and as you all should know, the uh, former Raptors play-by-play announcer. Chuck, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. And uh, if you're ever at any point ready to, to wrap this thing up, all you got to do is bring out the salami and cheese and we can, we can end things. <laughs> Good one. I like it. <laughs> how, uh, first of all, a uh, lot going on right now. How are you and your, your family doing during all this? Well, thank you for asking. And like everyone else, you know, we try to occupy the time um, predominantly staying in-house, although obviously for essentials. We have to uh, go to the grocery store and whatnot. But, um, you know, we're playing a lot of uh, card games and board games, and I'm failing miserably (laughs) in those areas. My wife is superb. She's the smartest one in the family. And so uh, we've done that. We've done a lot of binge watching. We're going to finish up Little Fires tonight. But we've seen everything from uh, Love is Blind to McMillions to Designated Survivor. I'm probably missing a series or two somewhere in there, but you get it. Do you ever, when you're when you're playing those games at home, do you ever start, especially with no basketball going on right now, do you get into broadcast mode, or are you able to, to keep that down and focus on the games? Well, the only time I really get into the broadcast mode is when I get whipped in a game and my wife circles around the table in jubilation, <laughs> and then I'm ready to call out the salami and cheese. <laughs> Yeah, uh, me and my father call games at the uh, University of New Brunswick for their uh, their basketball program, and uh, my family uh, gets annoyed when me and my father are just watching the game at my home because we do uh, get into broadcast mode, and then they get a little bit annoyed. So uh, <laughs> it, 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 it happens. Uh, so, yeah, the, the uh, last dance aired on Sunday. Uh, what would you think as you, you were watching those first two episodes? Was there anything that stood out to you? No, you know what? I mean, um, I was not in Chicago that last year. I was calling the uh, play-by-play for the University of Michigan. Actually, it was my last year calling Michigan ball before I went to the Raptors. And, um, you know, what you saw was pretty transparent and revealing regarding the just the dysfunction of the front office uh, to the coaching staff, to the players. It was very, very unfortunate um, with the run coming to a conclusion and, um, you know, my only, my only wish is that Jerry Krause could be alive because I wish that he could have defended himself because it was pretty apparent that the coaching staff and the players, um, you know, bonded and were joined at the hip. Um, and I'm not saying all the players or all the managerial staff, but the nucleus and the core group uh, obviously had uh, a major division with the uh, general manager. So, yeah, on that, was was the way they showed Jerry Krause, do you think that was fair? I mean, 
They showed him coming out during the ring ceremony in 97, getting booed. Was it really that bad of a, a reaction from fans? Well, I mean, you know, anytime there's a, a person, you know, that is portrayed as the villain, um, you're probably, the fan base is always going to side with players like an MJ and a Pippen and a Phil Jackson. Um, but, you know, Jerry, some of the things Jerry did probably brought on himself. Some of the things, however, he did a lot of great things for the Bulls. And again, my heart goes out to the family because they have to relive this 22 years after the fact. And the papers have been here in Chicago have been extremely hard on Jerry Krause over the last 48 to 72 hours. And it really, really has bothered me to be quite personal about it. Yeah, that's fair. And just uh, I, I kind of saw that as the the documentary was unfolding, the first two episodes, it was it was definitely hard to even even listen to it at, at some points. Um, did the decision or the desire to blow up that team at the time, was that completely off the wall or, or was there some sense in that? Well, I mean, listen, every team has its run. And these are very, very hard decisions for ownership and coaches and players alike. And in a make-believe world, everyone could freeze an age where they're all in their prime and they could play for 15 years. But as we know, that's never the case. And so at that period of time, you're looking at Jordan, who is still a very, very good player, uh, who showed no signs whatsoever of slowing down. If you look at the stats of the 97-98 season, he played close to 39 minutes a game, Ooh. played in all 82 games, averaged nearly 30 points. He was phenomenal, as we all know. And then you had Pippen, who was breaking down, but still a very good player um, in his prime, but the needle was starting to go the other way, but still you know, one of the top players in the league. And you had Rodman, who you didn't know you know, probably from season to season, what you were going to get. So they did have other, you know, what I call satellite players that formed around that nucleus core. But there was such a wedge between the coaching staff and the general manager and the players, the core players uh, gravitated and were joined at the hip with their head coach. And I think that's admirable because I think, you know, in this day and age, as we all know, uh, players tend to think players first and everyone else second. And the players were very, very loyal to Phil. And I get that. They won, you know, going into that season, they won five titles. And who knows, they could have won two more had Jordan not elected to go baseball. So you're looking at that situation. You're saying to yourself, well, Phil Jackson, you know, it's, it's apparent this is going to be it. Jordan has come out publicly and said he doesn't want to play for another coach. So you've already eliminated your head coach and your best player. Then you have a player in Pippen who wants to be paid. And he felt, and understandably so, he was underpaid. But he signed that contract. And, you know, I'm very black and white about this. When you sign a contract, you have to understand the moment you sign that contract, chances are, Within a year, a year and a half, that contract is going to be completely outdated because salaries are going up. The cap was going up. And I get the fact that the players want security. They have a lot of issues going on. 
perhaps, you know, family issues where they want to take care of their family. I completely understand 100% because they're one knee injury away or a major injury away from not able to extend their career. So that's the, that's the choice you made. You wanted a seven-year deal. You were told, I'm not sure you should do this. You want to go short-term, we'll go short-term. And Scotty Pippen elected to go long-term. That's his right. I totally get it. But once he signed that deal, probably after the second year of that deal, he's looking around at other contracts, and he's probably saying to himself, wait a minute, I'm a top three, five player in this league. I haven't even hit the apex of my career, and I'm underpaid. Well, the ball club told him. And they said, you want plan A or plan B? And he selected the one that best suited his family. And again, I get that. But once you sign that from a business standpoint, there's no turning back. And whether I signed a contract with then the Toronto Raptors or the Chicago Bulls, once I start hearing of other contracts broadcasters are getting, good for them. But I'm not going back into management when Richard Petty was there or Tom Ansomi with the Raptors or, you know, Michael Reinstorm of the Bulls and say, hey, guess what? I just found out that the broadcaster for this team, no, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've got to be ethical and moral and do what's right so I can look in the mirror and also establish a foundation for my family and children that my word is bond. And when I put my name on that contract, it is what it is. It's a contract. So, you know, that's that's where I'm at. It's a long answer. I apologize <laughs> no, for that. That's okay. how I feel. Uh, was it shocking at the time, his decision to, uh, to, to go for a, a seven-year deal, or did that kind of make sense given where he was at? Well, I was in Chicago when he signed that deal. And, you know, again, we don't know what a player is going through from a personal standpoint, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with his family and whatnot. Um, and he probably also looked at the numbers and saw that he was going to be one of the top paid players at that point in time in the late 80s, early 90s to maybe, you know, that 92, 93 period. But again, the league really took off because of Jordan. Now, did he have the vision and foresight? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. All this was fresh, it was raw. Uh, but at the same time, when he signed that contract, um, you know, it's, it's almost like, I'll give you an example on the other way. When a pitcher signs a 10-year deal, the, the baseball franchise knows that if they can get six and a half, maybe seven years out of that deal, and they go to the playoffs, or even perhaps a championship series, or gosh, a World Series, that contract is probably validated. That contract said, okay, you know what? We, we asked him to be the leader of the pitching staff, to be a guy that can win anywhere between you know, 17 to 21 games a year. And if he can fulfill that and keep us in games and be a stud and an ace in the rotation, I can live with having probably to eat the last three years if the first seven, seven and a half are good. So a club will go into that knowing what's happening. And truth be told, the pitcher probably knows also what the story is. So um, in this case, it's reverse. The, the player goes in saying, I've got guaranteed money for seven years. And, you know, 
taken care of if my career is still on an upwards swing. Now, you know, Pippen was banged up. He Pippen was going to get paid. He just wasn't going to get paid by the Bulls mm-hmm. because when you break up your team, if you have a max slot player and you know you're probably not going to go to the playoffs for a couple of years and you're not going to win a championship probably or at least be put in a position to win a championship for four to five years, then you're looking at a max money player. And at that time, max money was probably around 15 or 16 million a year. You say to yourself, we're going to invest in a player 16 million a year for five years. And does that make sense when we should really kind of rebuild with the draft and with free agents that will put us in a competitive situation? So then when we're ready to win, we're going to have cap room and go after a prime player in his mid to late 20s instead of being stuck with a player in his mid-30s. Do you understand the rationale where yeah. I'm coming from? Absolutely, absolutely. And so the Bulls then made a sign-and-trade with Houston. Houston signed Pippen to a max contract, and that's the rest of the story. Do you have uh, – what was it like for you? You said you, you were obviously – you were around for that uh, that first three-peat. What was it like just being there and watching Michael Jordan play game in and game out? One of my favorite quotes uh, from the, the thing was, was Roy Williams, the coach of the Tar Heels, saying Jordan, Jordan was the only guy who could turn it on and off, and he never turned it off. And I thought that was so interesting. And unfortunately for me, I was still uh, – I was a very – I was about three years old when this was all happening. Okay, so thank I, you very much. <laughs> I, I, I missed out on it. But uh, what was it like to see the, that the incredible play night in and night out? Well, I mean, you know, the, the first time – I had heard of Michael Jordan in high school because he was heavily recruited by everyone. You know, had a flirtation to go to UCLA but stayed home in North Carolina. And so – you know, obviously the 82 championship game. Um, and then all of a sudden things took off. And I think Rod Thorne made a great statement. And I've known Rod for many, many years, the man who drafted Jordan. And he was the GM at the time with the Bulls in 84. Had the draft taken place after the Olympics, no chance Jordan goes three. He's going two. And I think there would have been so much pressure on Portland to make that selection or to make a trade. And the Bulls really didn't have players to make a trade with uh, to move up the two. This was a roster filled with journeyman-type players. So had the Olympics, because the Olympics were really, the coming out party, people could say, well, it was this freshman championship ring against Georgetown at uh, the Superdome in New Orleans. I think his big-time coming out party was the Olympics. So what you have is you have Jordan taking off and people right away said, there's something about this guy. He's got the it factor. And, you know, he put that team on his back and what he accomplished. And then he had to go through some rough times, obviously trying to get through Detroit and Boston, but it was worth it. And so then when they won in 91, that, that really set the table because the confidence level on that ball club just went off the charts. Do you have a, a favorite personal uh, moment or memory of, of Michael Jordan? Well, you know, um, here's the 
situation, the um, yeah, it was very hard getting close to Jordan, mm-hmm. especially after superstardom arrived. He had a very close knit of friends, and I get that. And you know, he he insulated himself. I totally get that because these guys are human beings, and they're peopled out. They can't go grocery shopping. They can't walk down the street. There's a price you pay for success. Now, the positives certainly outweigh the minuses. You are, um, you know, you're handsomely paid. You never have to buy a meal. Uh, Anything you want is at your disposal. And you're treated above the rest of 99.9% of society. Okay, so I get that. And most of us think that way and would say, boy, I'd love to walk in his shoes. Well, when you walk in those shoes every day, you have to manage that. And he had a group of people that were extremely loyal and attentive and, more importantly, looked out for the best interests of Michael Jordan, not of themselves. I think Jordan recognized that early. And, I mean, you know the story of uh, George Kohler, his, his you know, confidant, when Jordan was selected by the Bulls, there was a mix-up on the flight and the arrival, and Jordan came in. Remember, he's flying now commercial. He's by himself. He's going to O'Hare. He's picking up his own bags. He hasn't set foot in Chicago. They played the Olympics. He's coming in to sign his contract and for the press conference, and the car that was scheduled to be there didn't show up. So he's looking around, looking around, and here's this guy driving a limo, just trying to, you know, hunt down a ride or two. This is pre-Uber days. And, you know, George, he goes, hey, you know, I know who you are. Get in, you know, I'll take you to, you know, wherever you want to go. And they struck up in the car a bond, a relationship. And George said, hey, if you ever need to use me again, here's my card. And Jordan called him and contacted him. And all of a sudden, that one moment blossomed into a 40-year relationship. And so, you know, uh, as far as a reporter's concerned, he was terrific. He answered all the questions, one-on-one interviews, really, you know, unless he really wanted to do it. But he was always extremely professional. If you see Jordan after a game, you always see him in what? A suit and tie. It's never with a sweatshirt, never with a hoodie, never with a... Uh, you know, um, any type of jacket. It's always a suit or a, a turtleneck at the time, but always with a suit, tie, sport coat. And, and that's the way he wanted it. And he would talk to the media, and I think it was fantastic. What are you kind of looking forward to as we get set for the uh, the the rest of the documentary? What is there anything in particular you're uh, you're interested in seeing? Well, I mean, obviously, as we go deeper in this, we're gonna we're gonna see the uh, the fragmented um, issues of management, coaches, players. Um, but you know what? All of this should be really a celebration, and that's what I hope people come away with this: is that really, despite all the idiosyncrasies that are involved, um, and the depth of you know, some really, really disparaging remarks. Um, The truth of the matter is they won. And they were able to harness that and channel it in a positive way on the floor and in 
the playoffs and the championship round to celebrate what we have to the last dance. And so I, you know, I commend everyone involved um, on each of the layers that we've talked about, ownership, management, players, staff, everything, um, that they were able to at least stay focused, get this done. And then, of course, we know the rest of the story uh, in um, the 98-99 season, which was a lockout year where we played 50 games. And that was my first year with the Raptors. And we played the Bulls. And they were not, uh, obviously, I mean, the Bulls um, were not very good. And they weren't very good for a number of years. And it's very hard to rebuild as, you know, the Bulls right now are at the tail end maybe of a major rebuild, although they're building right now. They're not in a rebuild. Um, but, you know, those teams with the Bulls in the, um, you know, early 2000s, they were horrible. Well, you brought up the, the Raptors and your time with them. And while I got you here, I just want to talk with you a bit about what it was like for you as the uh, the longtime voice of the team. What was it like seeing the last year uh, the Toronto Raptors championship run and seeing them finally get that uh, that NBA championship? Well, it was great. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy for the entire organization. I'm happy for everyone involved um, because, you know, winning winning an NBA game, even on a cold, snowy Wednesday night in Minnesota is hard. Um, you know, you put 82 games together and then the playoffs and everything. You know, these players are physically and emotionally and mentally exhausted by the time. And then they, you know, they get that second, third wind in the playoffs because now, you know, the deeper you get, the more at stake. Um, and you realize we got something going on here that could be very, very special. And so, you know, when they won the title, I was ecstatic and I was so happy for Larry Tannenbaum and his uh, wife, Judy, and the entire Tannenbaum family. I think the world of them, they are outstanding people. And so if I took one thing out of that, I was really, really happy um, for for especially Larry and Judy. Awesome. Well, uh I appreciate you uh, coming on to chat about this, and I, I look forward to, to watching more of the, uh, the the documentary, obviously. And I will be, once we get basketball back, I always make sure I tune in to some Bulls games on the radio so I can still hear the uh, the classic Chuck Swirsky lines. So uh, thanks for, for all your time, just not only on this podcast, but uh, with the Raptors. It's a, it's a real pleasure to chat with you about all this. Thank you. I'll tell you what, I, you know, I love Toronto and um, I, I can't say enough good things about all the people there. And I wish you well. And uh, thank you for having me on. That was Chuck Swirsky, radio play-by-play uh, announcer for the Chicago Bulls. And, of course, former play-by-play broadcaster for the Toronto Raptors uh, on The Last Dance, the documentary on the 97-98 Bulls that is going to be airing over the uh, next few weeks, you can catch that if you're in the U.S. on ESPN and if you're in Canada on Netflix. Now, if uh, you liked what you heard, please feel free to leave a rating and review. Let me know what you think of the podcast. I always appreciate your support. You can also get in touch with me. My email is canadascourtpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at canadascourt, and on Instagram at canadascourt. So, Lots of places to check the podcast out. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening.